Good morning. Good news in the Watson household this week. We are permitted. We have closed on a house that doesn't exist yet, but we have closed and written a check for a house that doesn't exist yet. That's concerning to me, but um, they are going to start digging in our little lot very soon, maybe this week. So if you have spare time, get your shovels. We are, we are going to move before winter. Um, I'm kidding. You don't have to dig unless you want to. We are excited, though. Thanks for being here. Let's pray as we open up God's Word. Father, what an incredible time of worship, God, that we can follow you. We can decide to follow you, God, and this morning we need your help doing that. We want you, Father, to show us clearly how we can follow you. I think it's easy sometimes, for me at least, to just make these big statements about following you, but when we get down to it, it's hard. And I pray that this morning as we get a little more concrete and um, applicable to this, I pray that you would work. God, I pray that you would challenge us, you would encourage us by the truth of your word, according to the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, On July 22nd, 2006, I was no longer single. My single days were gone. No more ramen noodle meals. No more Super Smash Brothers all night long. Yes. I had a new life. On that day, July 22nd, I was married to Ashley Joy Martin. Um, A picture of our wedding pictures there. Not too far from here at Calvary Church in Lancaster, we had our reception at the Eden. Um, and on this day, on this day, my life changed. Um, Ashley had told me as we were planning for the wedding, she said that she wanted to have eight people in the wedding party. And I said, babe, that's great. I don't know that I have eight friends, though. Like, <laughs> help me figure this out. Thankfully, I have two brothers and a father that can't say no to me. So my dad was my best man. Here's a picture of our wedding party. Um, but it was, a, it was a special day. And on this day, my life did change. I was single no longer. Um, marriage is not just about the wedding. Marriage is not just about the wedding. Now, don't get me wrong. Weddings, this wedding was awesome. We had a, a jazz band come in. They did play a Christmas songs. That's a whole nother story. They played Christmas music during our reception. That was a fun surprise. Um, we had great food. We ate cake. We celebrated with all of our friends and our family, and it was an amazing day. But our marriage is not just about the wedding. When the, when the wedding was over, we didn't go our separate ways. I didn't go back to my apartment. She didn't go back to her parents' house. Things changed. We came together. Our life came, became one. Um, and, and we eventually moved to Texas. We started doing ministry together. We started making decisions together. We, we struggled together, but we were together. Something new. And in the same way, okay, in the same way, being in Christ is not just about this experience here. Like, this isn't where the story ends. It's like, yes, we celebrate this, that this is who we are in Christ. But that's not where we stay. That's not where we sit. 
just like the wedding is not, just like the marriage is not just about the wedding, it's not just about this. We move and we progress and we grow and we change. And this is exactly what Paul is doing in Ephesians. And we've talked about this, and I keep talking about this, that Ephesians, is, this is how it's set up, is, is that this is who we are in Christ. This is who we were before Christ. And then chapters four through six, it's like, now go and live in this. Don't just stay here, but do something. And kind of the, the underlying message is that, is that good thinking or good believing about these things produces right living. That when you learn to think accurately about who you were and who you are, that naturally that, that produces a change in how you live. And if you don't think correctly about these things, then the right living is not going to happen. And so Paul has set this up perfectly, and he's finally in chapter 4, and he's just been waiting to get there. No commands up to this one command. And now he's like, let's start living in light of this. And so that's where he goes in verse 1. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so he starts this section, and I I don't mean to keep doing this, but I, I will... I will keep doing this. The first word, therefore. He's saying, therefore, you were lost, you were doomed, and you were stuck, and and God came to get you. Like, he didn't leave you in this. He came and he rescued you. You were abandoned. And he came and he brought you into his family. Even though this, Therefore, he's saying, because of this right here and what Christ has done, I am going to urge you to live this way. He says, a prisoner for the Lord. He's saying, this is who I am. I have given everything to God because of what he's done. I have willfully submitted to him. And he says, kind of the big idea of this section, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of our calling to which you have been called. Okay, he's begging with them. He's saying, now go walk. Now walk is a picture, is a metaphor, and we've talked about this before in in the Psalms. Walking is a picture for how you live your life. Walking is how people got places. It's how you went from one place to the next. Walking was a picture of progress, of movement, of activity, and he's saying, again, get out of the box. Get out of the box. Now go walk. Like, we should put wheels on this. Oh, that's a good idea. That's a, where's Keenan? Wheels on this thing. It's like, go, walk, live, prog- progress, go do something. And so that's what walking is. It's this picture of how we live our life. You know, I, and I was thinking about just how to illustrate this, is that we weren't, we weren't saved through faith to stay in this box. Like we go to the beach every summer down at Sandbridge Beach. And, and 
It's a painful drive to get to Sandbridge Beach from where we used to live in Washington, D.C., 495. It's going to be worse now. This awful drive, we go all these hours to get to the beach, and we get a, a beach house. This beach house has a name. That's cute, right? It's, you know, beach houses have these names. You go, my family comes. It's a wonderful thing. But we don't go through all the hassle with the three kids and all the stuff and the traffic to get. To, we don't go for the beach house. It's a nice house. Like, it's, there's, there's windows, and you can see it's pretty. But, like, there's a TV. But we don't go to the beach house to watch TV. We go to the beach house to enjoy the bay and go to the beach and go get ice cream. It's like, we don't just want to sit in the house. And it's similar to this idea. He wants us to go, to walk, to move. What does he tell us to do? Walk in a manner worthy. That's such an interesting phrase to me. Living, walking in a manner worthy. Sometimes when we think of being worth something or someone having the worth of something, we think of merit. Like he worked really hard. He, he, he was worth the, the promotion or he worked so he, he did such a good job in tryouts. He was worthy of making the team. But this isn't the merit that he's talking about here. This, this idea of worth is one of weight. He's saying your life should weigh the same as the calling of God in your life. He's saying your life should weigh the same as the calling or the cost that it got to get you where you're going. What a picture. What a picture for us. So when someone looks at your life, when they look at just how you live and how you talk and how you interact with people, do they say, yeah, yeah, there's something, something's different. Like he lives like something supernatural has happened in his life. How he interacts with people. Yeah, that something has happened. Or do they look at your life and say, like, if they're waiting, like, this, this, is there any difference? Are they surprised to know that this has happened to you? Living in a way that's worthy, demonstrating the value of what God has done in your life. And if you remember when we talked about redemption, remember the illustration we talked about? Remember the, the, the story with the, the boys that were stuck in the cave, the 12 boys for two weeks? Over two weeks, nine days, they, they weren't found. They didn't know where they were. They found them, and two weeks later, in this awful situation where um, this community in Thailand realized we have to do something quick to save these boys. They had tried to pump out water and to drill holes, but they quickly realized that's not working. Their oxygen is going down. We have to go on a rescue mission now. And so with these Navy SEAL divers, they go in for this crazy rescue Okay, and, and it ends up costing a Navy SEAL diver his life. But all the time that was put into this rescue, all the people, I mean, it became a worldwide story that are watching these boys get rescued. Okay, the idea of living worthy for those 12 boys and that coach that were rescued is this picture of, are you going to live in a way that shows the value, shows the value of what was done to save you? Like, are you going to live a life of gratefulness and in your gratitude and care for what has been done for you? Like, are you living in a way that is worthy of this rescue? And so that's what he's encouraging them to do. Live in a way that is worthy of the price that was paid to get you. Our situation was much worse than the cave situation of those boys. Like, our situation was much worse 
than their situation. The rescue, as awesome as it was for these Navy SEAL divers to come in and to get the boys, and to, they had to sedate the boys so that they could, they could get them through the tight spaces. As crazy and as, as beautiful as that is, the rescue that God gave us is so much better and costly. And he's saying, your life should weigh the same as that. Like, it should demonstrate that. And then he says, let me tell you, let me tell you, we've talked about that over and over. Let me tell you how now. Let's get into the nitty gritty, the this is what it's going to look like. And I'll be honest, like as I was thinking like about that passage, as I was thinking about this passage, it's like, Paul's been waiting for this. Like it's time to start telling them what to do. And if, if you were to guess like the top five things that Paul is probably thinking about, okay, your life has to weigh the same as the rescue that came to get you. You can write down five things that you think would be really important. Okay, I'm telling you, this one that we're about to talk to is not on your list. It doesn't make your top 10. Like, it's not even, you aren't even thinking about that. It's not evangelism. It's not generosity. It's not how you talk to people. It's not, it's not missions. It's not any of those. What he says is, you need to be together. Unity. Because of all this, you need to be together as a family. I'll read it again, what he says. Um, He says, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He's saying, guard the unity of the family. You know, you, you read the New Testament. And it's just, this is just one of those topics that just doesn't get talked about enough. I mean, you read the letters, uh, Paul's other letters. Unity is everywhere. Read Jesus's last prayer in the garden as he was betrayed by Judas. What is he asking for? The last thing he's praying for his disciples and for the church is unity. He prays. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. He's saying, I'm not just praying for these disciples. I'm praying for everyone who comes after me, for the other churches, for the other believers, that they may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. He's praying can they demonstrate the oneness between me and you, Father, and the Holy Spirit? Because when they demonstrate oneness and togetherness, the world will have no idea what's happening. Because unity is not something that is natural. We haven't seen unity since the garden. Right? That was the consequence of Adam and Eve's choices, was there was disunity. Things were broken up and separated. They were accusing one another. That perfect unity they had was broken. And it's like he's saying, I want you to reverse the curse. I want you to go back to being together, one, unified. And what is the the emphasis on this passage that we just read? One word. We keep saying it over and over. One. 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 We have one faith. 
one body, one spirit, one father, one God, one hope. And he's saying, we need to be together as one. Now listen, unity is hard. When we got married, Ashley and I got married, unity was hard. All right, I came from a different family situation. Two brothers, didn't grow up going to church. Ashley had the opposite upbringing. Two girls, always in church. Unity was hard. We were very different. As I described the ramen noodles, the smash, like that, that was not on her radar. <laughs> Sports, like getting excited about golf on a Sunday afternoon and enjoying curling and watching these sports. Like I loved it. She had no idea. Like, what are you yelling at the TV for? He's hitting a little white ball with a club. Like, why is this exciting? Unity was hard. We are very different, right? Unity is hard because we're different. I think of some of the things that were challenges for us that first year of marriage. Um, She, we just do things differently. She puts her clothes up when she's done wearing them. I toss them. I like eating out of a box. She likes cleaning things. She likes tidiness. She likes Christmas way early, way too early. (laughs) We are different. And so unity is not just default. It's something to fight for. And just think about this. And you relate to this, right? You relate to the challenge of unity with your husband and your wife and in your family. Like that's a hard thing because we are different, different personalities and different gifts and different ways of communicating and different histories and different like expectations, all these things that go in and just want to divide us. And think about how hard it's been to to have unity with your spouse. Okay, now think that, take that idea and relate that to the church. We're not talking about unity with one person that you love and you've known for years. We're talking about hundreds of people with differences and different philosophies and personalities and passions and gifts. And that same unity that we struggle with in our marriage is the unity that we're talking about here in this room. And so all I'm saying is, is that unity is hard. It's hard. We've got a lot of people with a lot of opinions. This place isn't opinionated, is it? That's a joke. You can laugh like really now. We have thoughts about things. And so it is hard to be together. Not only that, we live in a disunified culture, right? Not only is it hard because of all those things that I just mentioned, we live in a culture that's just hypercritical. Like it's, it's, we live in a culture that writes reviews, right? We love going to Yelp. We love writing these scathing reviews or just these honest assessments about how people have fallen short or companies have fallen short. We live just in a culture that is critical. It's easier in our culture to demolish things. I don't know how many of you enjoy demolition or tearing things down, okay? It's easier. Do do we have some people that like to just knock things and just destroy things and take, like, use a hammer, use fire, do something to just hit something, It's easier to demolish than it is to build up. It's easier to criticize than it is to encourage. And this is the culture that we are surrounded by. And Paul is saying, walk in unity. Fight for unity. And then we close with just really practical, really convicting ways to get 
to unity. You know, it's interesting writing sermons um, because oftentimes the sermon becomes just a therapy session for me um, because I realize how short I fall. And I have to, I'm just thinking and praying about these messages and as I'm writing them, what happens usually in a week is that I'm faced with the, the challenge of the application of the passage. Of course, we had a rainy, cold, in the house day yesterday, where I got to just think about these three application points. He's saying, here's how you do unity in your, with your spouse, with your church, with, with all brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me give you three things to focus on. First, he says in verse two, humility. Humility. Okay. I think a good way of thinking about humility is thinking about what humility is not, or what is the opposite of humility. It's pride. It's this idea that Life revolves around me. Conversation revolves around me. I am the center of everything. Humility is the opposite. Humility comes from the word humiliation. This picture of you getting the brunt, of you bowing yourself down and not getting what you want so somebody can get what they want. Humbling yourself underneath somebody else. Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but to the interests of others. There may be no harder thing. Like We are selfish to the core. Humility is saying... I'm going to not serve myself. I'm going to serve others. I'm going to make a choice to not talk about myself and to talk about somebody else, to engage them. This is so counter to our culture and to where we live today. Paul is saying, if you want to be unified, especially in a room like this with hundreds of people, you have to be humble. You have to get rid of yourself and your desires and your wants. And if we're going to be unified, we have to be humble. Second thing he mentions, gentleness. Oh, I've got boxes. Yeah, that's right. Gentleness. This is the one that I really got stuck on this week. I don't think anyone has ever described me as gentle. Okay, the opposite of gentleness is harshness. Okay, gentleness. You know, I was, you know, parenting is hard, and we know how hard parenting is. I just remember, I had this, this revelation a while ago. We were, um, we were going down the stairs. Somebody threw something down the stairs. Truman was walking his way down the stairs. Somebody threw something. It, it hit Truman, and Truman was mad. And he turned around. And as I'm just watching, okay, he starts screaming in anger. He's furious. And then all of a sudden, I had a pretty devastating realization. Just watching him, I realized he looks like me. We call it the Watson vein. You don't want to see the Watson vein. The Watson vein was coming out. He was saying things like, where, where is this coming from? And then it was like, he is modeling his father. And it's, it was devastating. It was 
harm, it was hurtful to me personally. And I just remember thinking, man, parenting is hard. Our kids watch us. Our natural response in situations is to be harsh. What Paul is saying here is that if we want to be together, we have to be gentle. And this is how God is. God is gentle. He doesn't respond to us the way we deserve. Psalm 103.10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He doesn't react harshly with us. The story of uh, the woman caught in adultery. We're not going to read it, but you have this picture of these men with stones just ready to condemn this lady that's been caught in sin. And, And they're just, they're talking about her like she's not there. And they are being hurtful, mean, ready to kill her. They have their stones. And Jesus says, no, not right now. Um, You can't condemn her. And Jesus tells her to sin no more. He responds in gentleness. They want to respond with harshness. We deal, so so many of us, we, we respond with harshness, with rocks in our hands. Our tone is angry. Our tone is mean. Our tone is harsh. And in parenting, we've learned this. One of the hardest parenting principles that I am still learning is the principle that we should not respond to our kids in the tone that, they are, that, the, in the tone that they're using. Right? If they're angry, you don't get down on their level. Like You don't get angry. You instead, you have self-control and you respond in gentleness. This is what the Proverbs teaches us. A soft answer turns away wrath. We respond in gentleness, in care and in compassion. The the person who is the most gentle person I've ever met is my father-in-law. I mean, the world could be falling apart, and he is as calm and kind and as compassionate as anyone. I've never seen his emotions take over. We were at a restaurant a couple months ago, and we're eating, he had taco salad. He takes his, and he's just a quiet, godly man. And, and I see him over there working on something. I'm like, are you okay? And he had, in his salad was a large metal screw. I'm like, oh boy, this is not good. And I could tell he was processing this. I'm like, how is he going to respond? He calls the manager over. I'm like, oh no, I'm nervous. And in the most kind and compassionate way, he says, I found a screw in my salad. It might be a good idea that you make sure that this doesn't happen to anybody else. Thank you. And I was blown away at his response because I was just getting worked up. He is gentle. The inner strength to control how you respond. Okay, gentle people listen. Gentle people are compassionate. It's not about self-assertion. It's not about being brash or rude or mean, but gentle. Then lastly, and I close with this, patience. Bearing with one another in love. Living in unity means we have to be patient with one another. Just this understanding that just like God is doing work in my life, and he's patient with me, with the things that I'm growing in, we we have that understanding for other people. That God is working in other people's lives at different paces and on different things and and that we need to be patient. How can we be patient? 
that last word there, bearing with one another in love. It's easier to be patient with people you love than people you don't know. The vehicle would be a really good example of that. Like, you don't know who's driving that car. You just know they're slow. You just know they're in your way. Like, we get impatient. We don't know the person. But if you knew the person, if it was your brother or your sister or your mom and dad, you would, hopefully, be more patient because we love them and we care about them. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, give each other a break. Forbearance, that last little phrase. Give each other a break. We're in this together. And so this is what he's saying. He said, you want to walk worthy? Like you want to live in light of this. You want to have the same value of what Christ has done for you. Hey, here's three, three things for you to be doing together. With your spouse, with your church, you should be humble, you should be gentle, and you should be patient. And that's going to bring us together. And what an interesting couple of qualities for him to emphasize at the very beginning, yet so challenging. And what I want you to do when you get to lunch today, I want you with your family to talk about these. And I want you to maybe share with the people that you're with, maybe some things that they do really well. Okay, we're going to start positive, right? What are some things that your brother or your sister or your spouse or the people that you're with do well? Like you see them do these things well. But then I want each person at lunch to share. Here's the one that I'd like to, to work on. And we pray that the power of the Spirit and in the recognition of this, that by the Spirit, we can grow in this, just like we've been talking about. That God doesn't want us to just stay where we are. You can change your temperament and the way you respond to things by the power of your spirit. Just because it's your personality doesn't make it, doesn't make it okay. A lot of times we just default, well, it's just, I'm just, I'm a loud person, I'm a bossy person, and that's just how, no. When we're not gentle, it's not the way God wants us to live in community and unity together. So talk about that at lunch. Let me close with prayer. Father, thank you for the fact that we can say, therefore, that you came to get us, that you rescued us, that you adopted us, and the cost was your son's life. And I pray that we would know that, and out of that, that we would walk in this building with one another, in our work, in our families, that we would walk in this. Help us to grow in these three areas. Help me, God, to grow in these three areas being humble, being gentle in situations that are anything but, to be patient. So God, we ask by the power of your spirit that you would change us, that we may live a life worthy of what you've done for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.